This is Judges 9 to 12. It's a big hunk of scripture. And you know what? It wasn't a very happy portion of scripture, was it? This, I just was like, what? I can't wait to get to Ruth and Esther. Judges have been, has been a very um, uh, negative and down. And we were warned about that beforehand. And they were, they were right. We're all looking at, from coming out of Joshua, all the excitement of going into the promised land, the promised land, land of milk and honey and peaceable. Joshua brought them through. It was everyone fought together. Everyone, I mean, they, they rallied and they fought for each other in there. And, and when it was all settled, pretty much, you know, the other troops, the other tribes went back over the Jordan and it was like they had a time of rest and it was harmony with the nation of Israel. In this lesson, what do we have but intra-fighting, um, fighting each other? And as I, as I outlined the four chapters and looked at it and scratched my head and then went and did Thanksgiving and came back at it thinking I'd have a fresh start on it, it was like this, the only theme in this is the depravity of man and the goodness of God. So we're going to look at it from what man is doing and what we do. There's, there's parallels here. And, um, and the goodness of God in all of this stuff, the long-suffering of him. So Judges 9 is a story of Abimelech. And Abimelech was you know, you know um, Gideon's son. Gideon was a pretty decent judge and everything, but he got a little full of himself near the end. He names Abimelech a name that means my father a king. Names are important. What you, what you name your children, what you name, they can. Ha- there's a lot of power in, in names. And um, I'm, right now I'm naming a new dog, and it's important what kind of name we come up with. So here's Abimelech, my father a king. He, he kind of gets, you know, full of himself a little bit. And we can see that he becomes a self-appointed ruler. He was not called by God. He is not a judge. And if you look at lists of the judges in, a, in, in a, somebody's commentary, Abimelech is not one of the judges. Okay? Verse 1. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Sechem to his mother's relatives, and said to them, to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am the bone, your bone and your flesh. So he's putting it out there, you know, letting them know, starting the gossip going. Think about this. He's kind of like a negative. You don't really want to be ruled by seven people. I'm I'm blood related to you guys, you know. Um, Why don't you just kind of think about that? And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, well, he's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver. And, they, and what he did with that was he went and he hired some worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. 
So this is a guy who is what we would think of as a salesman, somebody who's an opportunist. He jumps in there and he says, you know what, I'm going to go hang out with mom and I'm going to sell myself to him. And they buy into it, bought into his sales pitch, and they even give him some startup money to get going. What does he do with the startup money they give him? He goes and hires these worthless and reckless fellows. Some of your translations were vain and light persons. Men who were pretty empty, that they didn't have any possessions. They weren't worth anything. They weren't, they didn't have um, like 70 donkeys, okay? They were worthless in that regard. So they weren't really working, um, a little lazy. They were, had no purpose in life. They were a little bit arrogant. This is the group of guys he collects. Not like the group of guys that David collected, but these were just kind of Nerd, nerdy whales that thought, oh yeah, we'll get some money. So what do they do with his money? He gets, hires these guys, and in verse 5, we know that he goes and he kills all of his brothers, all except for one that gets away, but he kills all his brothers to eliminate the competition, and he killed them in one space, one place, maybe on this rock or something like that, and all the blood was spilled there. He probably had his, you know, worthless men there holding them down or whatever, but it was an ugly, bloody scene. And to kill one after the other like that um, is a horrible scene if you play it through in your head that this Abimelech was an evil uh, narcissist, if the word existed back then, I'm sure it did. I mean, he was just a tyrant. So the one youngest brother was hiding, he survived, and so all the leaders of Shechem all got together and agreed in verse 6 that they would make Abimelech their king, not their leader or their ruler, but their king. And we can even look at the fact that we can see that he's going to probably be a tyrant. We hear that word today in our news and everything, don't we? So let's look, just look for parallels here, if you want. Whenever we start something off on the wrong foot, more than likely it's going to end up poorly. So Jotham, the youngest brother who got away, he hears about it in verse 7. Um, and he goes to the top and stands on the top of Mount Jerusalem. Um, and remember, Mount Jerusalem was also mentioned in um, Joshua 8 where they had Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, remember, with Moses, and they, they yelled out the, the blessings and the curses from each side to each other, and that's where they renewed their covenant before God when Moses was around. And so it was a natural kind of amphitheater that was there that you could hear really well. So Jotham goes up there to Mount Gerizim, and he shouts out a warning to them. Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. He's got a warning for them. And after he does that, he runs and hides. But the warning is this. You need to listen to what I'm going to say and understand it. Um, if you want to keep your relationship with God and stay close with God. And what is it that he tells them? He goes into a parable. And the parable is about three 
four different plants. Three of the plants are very valuable. You've got the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. And the trees that were there go, and the trees go to the olive tree and pretty much ask them, you know, rain over us. And the olive tree is saying, no, I don't want to rain over you. I'm not going to give up my purpose in life to, to, is to do this wonderful thing anointing. No. So then all the trees go out to where the um, fig tree is and ask the fig tree. And the fig tree again rejects it and says, no, that's not my calling. My calling is to, my purpose in life is to um, bring sweetness and good fruit. Um, So I don't want to do that. They go to the vine and they ask the vine the same thing. And the vine says, no, that's not my purpose in life. And then all the trees go to the bramble. Come and reign over us. The bramble was a worthless plant. The bramble was a low-growing, ugly, thorny bramble. Um, And so the trees go to the bramble and ask the bramble to rule. And, of course, the bramble, full of himself and everything, accepts it. The bramble says to him, um, the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, Then come and take refuge in my shade. Now think about that. What kind of shade can a bramble give trees? Okay, right here should be a red flag to these people that this guy, this bramble bush isn't, is a, you know, slime ball thing. Um, And if you don't come and make shade, then fire is going to come out. I'm going to devour all the beautiful cedars of Lebanon. And, and the cedars of Lebanon were beautiful trees that, that David uh, cut, used for uh, Solomon's temple. I mean, they were just magnificent um, trees that were, the wood was used to make a lot of wonderful things in, in the Old Testament. And he was going to burn them all down, this bramble. So the bramble bush is very arrogant, very worthless and full of himself, but the trees I guess they were so desperate for a leader that they accepted the bramble and said, okay, we'll make you king. That's the parable. In 16 to 21, Jotham applies the parable to them. He says it, and then he lets them know that the people of Shechem will be repaid for choosing such a worthless man to lead them. It's going to come back and bite you. It's not going to be a good thing. God didn't call this uh, Abimelech up. Abimelech called himself up. Don't be so desperate for a leader. Don't, don't go with that. You need to follow God. So Jotham gets in there and he says, if you guys, people of Shechem, if you've acted rightly and respected Jerubbabel, who, you know, Jerubbabel fought for you, took care of you and everything, if you respected him, then rejoice. Did they respect Jerubbabel? No. They kill, he, you know, killed all his sons. They were part of killing the, the sons. Um, they weren't respectful. Um, then he's saying, if you aren't respectful, then you'll be destroyed by fire from Abimelech. And Jotham said that, and then he ran and hid. So they were forewarned. And we drop down into verse 22, and we see the sovereign God Again, all of this stuff is fulfilled, and it comes about the fall of Abimelech. Because in 22, it says, Abimelech ruled over them for three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. 
And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. So God sends this uh, spirit of division, this evil spirit in there to mix up the thing. Did the evil still come from God? No, they're they're all around. They're all around. God just allowed one to come in. And they're wreaking havoc, causing this dissension and this hatred and this, you know, this anger and stuff. And they plot against them. And they, they, the road into um, Shechem, they went ahead and they they ambushed it. So people that would come in to trade would be robbed and everything. So the, the roads weren't safe. So they kept coming in. And it was just a horrible time to be in Shechem with this. Um, so this is going on and all of a sudden a new guy comes into town Gail Gail from Ebed moves in he comes in he gets in there and he's hanging out and in verses 26 to 29 we have this you know guy he's probably a go-getter too whatever and saying hey you know get some wine together they press the thing they're going they're having a festival they're eating and drinking conversation goes around to hey who is this abimelech why are you you know after him here's this guy you know these abimelech's their king and yet they all hate him and he's hearing about this so gail's taking this opportunity now like well why do you have to serve him who is he that you, can, you need to serve him? So he starts to challenge the authority of Abimelech. He's causing division, this Gale guy. And then in verses 30 to 42, we find out that Zebul, who is loyal to Abimelech, here's what's going on. Um, this Gale, this new guy in town is starting to plot against you and stuff. And so Zebul is hearing this and his anger was kindled. And he goes and he tells Abimelech that this guy is stirring up trouble in the city and they're plotting an ambush and everything. So he and Abimelech make another counterplot against it. You see how evil works when there's no harmony. Everyone's out to get everybody else. There's nothing, nobody's there for your best interest or anything like that. You really just can't trust anybody and it's, you know, unsafe and it's the anxiety level and paranoia goes up because these people are just not, they're hating each other. So these plots are going and Abimelech and Zebul are going to plot like this. We're going to get up real early in the morning, and we're going to be ambushed in, in um, the road that comes in by the gate and be up high. And so Abimelech gets all his men in verse 34, and they're all up there ready to ambush. They rose very early. And Gail's there also, and he's down there talking to Zebul, who thinks he can talk to Zebul. He's a pretty nice guy. And Gail says, hey, I, there's people coming down. Men are coming down. And he says, Zebul says, no, there's no man. You think there's something else. There's the sh- shadows of the, you know, early morning or something. There's nothing there. And he says, oh, okay. And then they move down a little bit more. Abimelech's men move down a little bit more. And Gail's like, well, no, no, there they are. And at that moment, when all of Abimelech's men were positioned where they needed to be, that's when they said, yes. You know, and he says to him, 
Um, you, you have, um, Gail spoke again. He said, look, the people are coming down. Zubril said to him, where is your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech, that you should serve him? And then they start to fight and everything. And Gail went out of the head of the Shechem and they fought. Bloody, just, you know, just a horrible time to be living. Chased him away. Many fell and were wounded. And they drove him out of Shechem. Abimelech's on this mass murder roll now. Because Abimelech is not a good man. So he just feels good about himself. He chased Gala out of town and everything and all that. So the next day, he goes into another town. And he starts to um, round up the people and kill the people there. And and, um, a thousand people in that town run into this strong tower for safety. And what does Abimelech go? He goes and chops down some wood. He tells his men to go and chop down wood like him. And they they set up the wood around the base of the the strong tower. And they light it on fire. And a thousand people die, burn alive in that tower. For no reason. Abimelech. Just evil. And that went well. That went really well. So he goes to the next town. And those people also, they run and, and they get into their strong tower also, and they go up there, and Abimelech's going to do the same thing to them. He's down hanging around the bottom. And a woman, I love this, because we saw it last time, head was crushed with this tent stake in the guy's head. We have it again. Here's this woman up there. Who knows what's at the top of that thing? They were grinding mill or whatever. She takes a millstone, three, five pounds, whatever, and looks over. And kind of drops it down. Lands directly on his head. Doesn't kill him, though. I mean, he's dying. And what a horrible thing we know to be killed by a woman. How disgraceful. So he said to his little sword bearer there, drive it through to me so it won't be said that I was killed by a woman. Well, we've got news for Abimelech. Because Second Samuel eleven twenty one mentions that Abimelech was killed by a woman. And it's written in the word of God. So God's judgment in verse 57 comes down on Abimelech. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the sons of Jerubbabel. God is in charge. God is. God is a just God. He's a fair God. He's, he's an all-powerful God. Um, and he's overseeing all the things that are going on. Israel not only had enemies from outside of its nation, but there were also enemies that could rise up within its nation. So looking at all this craziness going on, if we picture or focus on God, it's all about God. Who is God? He is our strong tower. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And Psalm 61.3, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. That's truly a strong tower we can go to and trusting in God and, 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 and submitting to God and being obedient to God. That's the best strong power that we can be in with all this stuff. So Abimelech's gone. Chapter 10 is, was an interesting chapter. There's really no 
There's two minor judges that get talked about. Tola, he was from the tribe of Ishakar, and he ruled for 23 years. And then Jair, he was there for 22 years, and he lived like a king with a bunch of stuff and everything. And then there's minimal mention of them. And then in verse 6 to the end of the chapter, it's unique because it has the number 7 in here a lot. Um, it's considered Israel's sevenfold apostasy. In verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That phrase is in the book of Judges seven times. I'll give them to you if you want them. 211, 37, 312, 41, 61, 106, and that next week, 13 one with um, Samson. Seven times that phrase is in the book of Judges, that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They didn't even try to hide it. They did it openly in sight. We see that today. Evil is not trying to hide anymore like it used to. It's, it's just horribly corrupt out there. Ads, movies, whatever. It's just, it's gotten exponentially out of control. So, Seven times that phrase is mentioned. In verse 6, there's also seven different gods that the people were, were um, worshiping. People did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. Seven different types of gods, different nations, different whatever. We know they're all Satan, they're all evil, they're all corrupt, but seven different categories of that. And they forsook the Lord, they left the Lord, they abandoned the Lord, they rejected the Lord. That's what that word means. Um, and when God's anger started to kindle against them again, he sold them into the hand of the Philistines who crushed them and oppressed them. For 18 years, they were oppressed. And Israel was severely distressed. 18 years. That's like a whole generation coming up of being severely depressed because they chose, they, they chose to forsake God and worship these pagan God, Satan behind it all. Doesn't matter. So all God wanted to do, he wasn't trying to punish them. He just wanted to discipline them to bring them back to repentance. But it shows at this point in Israel's history how deceived and corrupt they had become that they would put up with so much stuff. I look at our society today. How much stuff are we going to put up with before we say enough? Quit teaching our kids that. Quit doing that. I don't want to hear it. So the depravity of man can get to be very, very low. And then finally in verse 10, they call out. They got to the point where they call out. God will always, he's not going to abandon his people. But you know what? When we sin, we're not going to lose our salvation. But when we sin... It's like we're in this wash machine and God turns up the agitation. Are you going to repent? 
Not going to repent? Well, let's get the agitation going a little bit more. We got to repent. We got to repent. And it gets going a little go. I'm like, bang it around. You know how the washing machine kind of goes like this? <laughs> let's throw some nails in there to get you washed up. Whatever. Um, but he, he does it until we get to the point where we finally do repent because of his love for us and his mercy for us. But when it goes on for so long, it should show our hearts. So the people of Israel are at a point now where they're realizing they cry out to the Lord because they have sinned. We have forsaken you and serve these gods. Um, and the Lord says to them in verse 11, did I not save you from the seven enemies, Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moabites, Moanites, who oppressed you. And you cried out to me, I saved you from all of these people. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, first time God says this, the book of Judges, I will save you no more. Go cry to the gods whom you have chosen. No one twisted your arm. No one had a gun to your head that made you follow these gods. You chose them. Go cry out to them and let them save you in their time of distress. This probably really, really scared the people. My gosh, we can't even go to my word. Can you imagine not having that hope that we couldn't go to God So in verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, we have sinned, do to us whatever, just do it now, please help deliver us now. And so what did they do in verse 16? They put away their foreign gods that they had served. Because there was a behavior there now. It wasn't just worth them saying lip service to God, we've sinned, save us, we're sorry, whoa, whoa, whoa. God was looking on the heart to see if their behavior was going to reflect what they needed to do in repentance. And it did. They put away their gods. um, And the Lord saved them, and they started to serve the Lord again. And there's a funny phrase there at the end of verse 16. And God became impatient over the misery of Israel. He becomes impatient over the misery of Israel. It doesn't mean that God is sinning with impatience what it is meaning here is that when we sin over and over and god has got to turn up the agitation on the washing machine or allow things to happen our own consequences of the sin or whatever it 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 grieves god and and he gets impatient of, of of wanting you us to 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 repent and get back with him that was where his impatience is God wants us to be sincere. We need to be sick of sin. These Israelites needed to be to the point where they were sick of their sinning. It was almost a test of sincerity when he pulled back and refused to save them and, and, and for them to realize, wow, we're going to be left like this forever? This is not, this is not good. Paul in Romans seven twenty four, when he goes through that, wonderful run-on sentence of, I do what I don't want to do, and what I do do, I don't want to do, and everything like that. At the end, in in verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, too, 
will continue to go on a on the the road of destruction and keep going and keep going when we're left to our own devices. And he is the one that pulls us back around. He's the one that gives us the desire in our heart to serve him. He's the one. All good things come from God. So they repent. They get to a point of total surrender. Um, Do it now, God. Just We'll do whatever. We got rid of everything, got rid of their gods. God was at a point where he did not want them to suffer anymore. It's almost like... God grieves sin. When, when Lazarus died, Jesus grieved. Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead. But Jesus' grief was at the fact that sin torments us and hurts us and is harmful to us. Um, and God wants nothing more than to, to, to love us and to bless us. So they repent, they're back on board. In verses 17 to 18, they they gather together for a defense, but they have no leader. So God is a strong tower for us to be safe in. It's all about God. There's no one good except God alone. Jesus says that in Mark 10, 18. There is no one good except God. No one. And anything that we do is good, is done in the power of his spirit. And even that is tainted. What does it say our best efforts are but what filthy rags? And that's translated used menstrual pad. That's pretty bad. So we have to realize our need for God and realize every day that when we try to do things without him, it's just going to end in disaster. And we'll end up coming back. All right. Wrapping it up here, the last two chapters are talking about Jephthah. Jephthah, say that with a lift. Um, he's dealing with the Amorites in chapter 11 and the um, Ephraites, Ephraimites in chapter 12. So they don't have a leader. They come on board, and Jephthah, the Gileite, um, was a mighty warrior. But he had a, not a good pedigree here. His mother was a prostitute. Um, so Gilead's father was, um, okay, Gilead's wife, and there were other sons and everything like that. And his brothers, his half-brothers, drove him out of town because they didn't want to have anything to do with, you know, a, a bastard kid or a, someone whose mother was a prostitute. He just didn't, he was like, you know, not valued, rejected by his family. He was a worthless man. So he goes and he gets some worthless men around him. Um, and uh, he, he runs away, collects all these worthless fellows that hang around him, and they hang out. <laughs> I looked this and I thought, Israel wasn't short of worthless men, were they? I mean, they, had, they didn't have to go too far to find some worthless people. So he's got some worthless guys hanging out with him. Now, this worthless, again, means they were poor. They had no property. They had no employment. Hey, what else are we going to do today? We might as well go hang out with him. Verse 48, the Amorites decide to make war against Israel. Okay, making war. Let's just decide we're going to make war against you, misunderstanding or whatever it was. Um, In verse 5, the Amorites made war against Israel, and the elders of Gilead went to bring back Jotham. They want him because why? He was a mighty warrior. So they go to him, and they ask him, the elders ask him, please come back, you know, and, and be our leader here fighting against the Amorites. 
Ammonites, it's not going well. Verse 7, but Jethoph says, you hate me. You drove me out of my father's house. Why have you come to me now? What, what, when you're in distress, what are you doing? That's why we've come to you, because you're such a wonderful fighter and everything. In verse 9, Jephthah says to them, well, if you bring me back home to fight, I'm going to be your leader. I'm just not going to come home and fight and then leave again. I'm going to be your leader. And they say, okay, come home, be our leader. Um, so they, he negotiates with them, and that works out well, and he... Um, comes back, and he thought, well, that went well, negotiating with them. So maybe now I can negotiate with the king of um, the Ammonites because it's truly not right what he's doing. He has no grudge against us, okay? So in verse 12, he Jethoph goes to the king of the Ammonites to explain to him what really happened in history, okay? Um, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against me? And the king of the Amorites answered him, because Israel, on coming up out of Egypt, took away my land and all this land stuff and all this stuff. And it goes on. I'm not going to spend time in it down through verse 26, explaining um, Jephok explains to them, no, that's not what happened. We went there. You guys wouldn't let us go through. So we had to go all the way around. And then this happened. And then God gave us this land and everything. And really, God gave us this land. You don't have a gripe against me. He says in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you. And you do not have anything wrong. You do, do me wrong by making war with me. The Lord, the judge decided this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. This is interesting because he refers to God, the, the judge. He told this king that almighty God, the one true judge, is the one that has decided this case. You have no beef against me. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to him, to the words of Jephthah, and he sent that he sent to him. So they got to go to war. Go into war. Verse 29 says that going to go to war. And the spirit of God, spirit of the Lord, was upon Jephthah. Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And then we find in verse 30, he makes this foolish vow. How do the two of those things go together? When the spirit of the Lord was upon him, does not mean that he was controlled by the Spirit. Spirit of God was guiding him. Spirit of God was empowering him. Spirit of God was helping him to, to work out um, God's sovereign will, and that was going to fight and defeat these, this enemy. In that, we still have free will. A person can resist the Spirit of God. The person that can resist and ignore God's guidance and everything, you can still be a solid Christian, a, um, a, a Bible-believing, devout, holy person, but we're not perfect, and we live in a fallen world, and, and it's just until we get to heaven and get a new, new everything, we're going to make mistakes. He was empowered by the Spirit, but he still had... He still was flawed. The biggest thing here, when he makes this vow about first thing he's going to give you, give you the, if you let me win this war, the first thing that runs out of my house, I'll make him a burnt offering to you, and blah, blah, blah. What we're going to pull out of this is this. 
we don't need to bribe God. We don't need to bribe God. It's better to be on God's side than to persuade God to be on our side. You see the difference? It's better to be on God's side and what God wants us to do and be led by God than I'm going to do this, and God, and will you, come on, can you, if you do this, and if I, and if I do this, will you do this for me, and, and kind of, we don't negotiate, we don't bribe with God. Um, so, they win the battle. He goes home, what comes out of his house, his only daughter, his only child, all celebratory and everything. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm not going to give you the answer to this, because if I could give you the answer to this today, the answer would already be out there, right? But we're going to look at a couple of things. Um, if Jephthah had known the law better, he would have known that he could have gone to the priest and made a substitute offering. Oh, I don't want to do this. He also knew that human sacrifices was a no-no. That was forbidden. That, plus the daughter goes off and mourns the fact that she'll never get married and never be able to have children, makes me lean more toward the fact that she was not killed, not a burnt offering, but that she was given to the tabernacle for service. Lifelong service, kind of like a nun, um, the ones who did serve in the tabernacle and the temple were the widows. The widows did. Older women that didn't have, you know, family take care, whatever. And they would go and they would serve. So here's a young girl, 14, 15, whatever, that is, is sacrificing her whole life to be a mom and even Jethro's uh, lineage to go on because it was his only child uh, was coming to an end. So... We can lean more toward that. You know, child sacrifice was pretty big back then with the, these pagan nations and stuff. Um, but that's kind of a way to go. Either way, it was a foolish thing for him to do because he didn't need to bribe God. He did not need that. So the final part of our lesson today is with... Uh, the Ephronites. Now, the Ephronites, we know. We've run into them before. They are full of themselves. They've got the tabernacle in their town, right? They're special on everything, and they don't like being left behind. They like to be in the forefront of everything and get credit for all this stuff that's going on. So they're pretty mad at Jephthah for not allowing them to be in this part of this wonderful um victory that they had. And they said, you know, why did you cross over to fight against the Amorites and you didn't tell us to go over there with you? We're going to burn your house down now. You see how these people are just so full of themselves and they're not even looking at the nation as a whole with harmony. Well, they're chronic complainers, chronic complainers. Same thing with Gideon. They complained about when, you know, he didn't let them do something. All right. They did have the chance to help in reality, and Jetham tells them that, and he refused to do that. So they start going at war with each other. Jetham and, you know, the, the, the Ephraimites, they start fighting with each other, and it doesn't get it's ugly, ugly, ugly. So this tension is there. Their enemies are at animosity, and I love this part. 
because then enabled to be able, they're all from one nation, so they all looked alike, but to be able to distinguish the enemy from who they were, it was whether or not they could pronounce the word Shibboseth. Shibboseth. Versus they couldn't say the H. For whatever reason, their dialect was different. So they would say, Shibboseth. Try this out. S-H, Shibboseth, or Sibbathef. It's real slight. But what I found out in studying this is that word Shibbathef is a word that's used today. Um, it's a word or pronunciation that distinguishes people of one group or class from an, another group or class. We still use that word today. Isn't that amazing? So Shibbathef. All of this to say this. There were three other judges. Ibzan, seven years. He had 60 kids. Elon, 10 years. Abda, eight years. He had 40 sons rode around on donkeys, which meant there was peace in the land. They weren't on war horses. All of it to say this. We need a savior. (laughs) We need a savior. And it's all about God. And the book of Judges is showing us the long-suffering of God. The long-suffering and, the, and again, the trying, the letting us go on our own and to do it, and we think we can do it, and we just fail again, and he's always right there to pick us back up. But the book of Judges is all in preparation for the Messiah to come. Nahum 1.7 says this, The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So the big thing, and I'm, I can't wait till after Christmas when we get into Esther and Ruth, because this, this is a, not, I don't want to say oppressing, that's too heavy of a word. It's a, a realization also on how much we, if we really look at our own hearts, how we're in here. Now, we're not going to go kill people and stuff, but, but there's a lot of things in us that we need to totally yield to God and surrender and live with him every single minute of the day we need him.